One of the most fascinating stories in human history is the conquest of the world by Alexander the Great. Under Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire conquered the world in eight years, and Alexander was only 32 years old. Some historians say that after conquering the world, Alexander sat down and cried because there was nothing left to conquer. But he wasn't the first monarch to rule the world. The first was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. God granted him the privilege way in advance of seeing how the course of human history would unfold. We are told about it in Daniel chapter 2, and I invite you to turn there by way of introduction to the passage we want to consider in the book of Revelation. So we'll begin our time in the Word in Daniel chapter 2. So turn there with me, please, as we spend some time here before turning over to Revelation chapter 13. Verse 1 of Daniel chapter 2 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that bothered him so much that he couldn't sleep. Notice verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. (coughs) Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Up until this point, the the wise men in Babylon had an easy job interpreting dreams. They could just give any interpretation that sounded reasonable, and who would know the difference? But Nebuchadnezzar was demanding that they tell both the dream and the interpretation. Furthermore, he said that if they didn't, then they would be torn apart limb from limb, which was a common form of capital punishment in that day. And also, the end of verse 5 records that their houses would be made into public restrooms. Not all English translations bring that out, but that is basically what he was saying. This was a way to degrade someone to the utmost. Probably the reason Nebuchadnezzar was so upset was because To forget a dream in the Orient meant the gods were angry with you. And he forgot this dream. As we'll see in just a moment, God was clearly involved in Nebuchadnezzar forgetting this dream. Verse 6 tells us, he's continuing, However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you I know for certain that you would gain time, because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. 
For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. In other words, till I forget about it, till it's no longer an issue to me. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. At least this group was honest. They admitted this kind of thing could not be done, and there's no such thing as telling the future, and there's no reliability to horoscopes and such, apart from demonic influence. They knew that, and these were the experts. So they relayed that to Nebuchadnezzar, and it infuriated him. So in a fit of rage, he decrees that all the wise men of Babylon be killed. And remember, Daniel and his friends were among this group. So in verse 12, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. So Daniel asks for some time, and he says that he will give the dream and its interpretation. Now let's pause at this point for just a moment, because back in chapter 1, you may be wondering, well, how could Daniel know for sure that he would be able to do this? Back in chapter 1, we were told some important information related to this. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, As for these four young men, that would be Daniel and the men that we commonly know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, That's, that was, that those weren't their Hebrew names, but the names they were given. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And here's the key phrase. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You see, in former days, as you know from reading the Bible, God chose to speak through dreams and visions quite often. Hebrews 1 teaches us that now God speaks to us through His Son, that is, what His Son taught when He was here on earth, that is recorded in Scripture, and what is written about His Son in the rest of the New Testament. But this was very common back prior to the canon of Scripture being complete. So Daniel made his request to the king, and it was granted. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. They prayed, they sought the Lord, God granted their request. Verse 19 says, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Pause here for just a moment because I want this thought to hit you I'm impressed with the fact that Daniel didn't rush off to tell the king this dream. Instead, he takes time to give thanks to the true God. 
In the next few verses, verses 20 through 23, Daniel gives a great prayer of thanksgiving. As we read through this prayer, notice Daniel's majestic, exalted view of God. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with Him. I thank You and praise You, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. And have made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. No wonder Daniel had so much composure throughout this event. His perspective of God made such a huge difference on his perspective of life. Daniel's view of God totally colored the way he viewed life. He looked at life through glasses colored with the sovereignty and majesty of God. That's why Daniel was so courageous and so confident. He really knew the God of heaven, and the God of heaven answered Daniel's prayer. So in verse 24 we read, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king. And I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? So Daniel is brought in before the king, and I want you to notice his composure. This is the most powerful man on planet Earth. It wouldn't even be an accurate comparison to compare this man to the President of the United States, who's the leader of the free world. This this was a monarch. This man ruled the world, not just a country or a nation. This is the ruler of the world. And yet in verse 27, notice Daniel's composure. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded... The wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Daniel affirms the emptiness of man's solutions. And then he says in verse 28, But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. By the way, it's interesting that Daniel referred to the God who is in heaven in verse 28. Because the Babylonians believed that all their gods came from the earth. So Daniel wanted to make sure that there was no misunderstanding as to which God had revealed this dream to him. It was the God of heaven, not the Babylonian gods. Also notice that in verse 30, Daniel refuses to take any credit for himself. In verse 30 he says, But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. 
So all of that is introduction to, to what is really the central purpose of this chapter. Because as we come to verses 31 through 35, Daniel reveals the content of the dream to the king. And then in verses 36 through 45, he interprets it for the king. Notice the dream. Verse 31, You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest of arms, uh, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of, of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream Nebuchadnezzar had. It was of a person, a man, huge man, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And this awe-inspiring image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream was standing there. And then off to the side, out of a mountain, all of a sudden a rock was cut out of the mountain, but no person was cutting it. It was cut without hands, and this rock was approximately the size of the feet of this image, and it was hurled without anyone throwing it, hurled at the image, and it struck the feet of the image with such force that when it collapsed, it collapsed into fine dust, such fine dust that the wind could just blow it away. And then this rock began to grow and grow and grow, and it filled the entire earth. That was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 36 This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Notice that Daniel begins the interpretation by asserting the sovereignty of God. God has given you your place, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel wasn't about to compromise the truth even in the presence of the top ruler of the world. He stated it was the God of heaven, Yahweh, who had made Nebuchadnezzar the great king. He was not the Babylonian gods. Verse 38, and wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. It's interesting that God used gold to represent this Babylonian kingdom because gold was used extensively in its architecture. In fact, the the historian Herodotus visited Babylon 90 years after the era of Nebuchadnezzar, and he said he saw still more than 22 tons of gold. So the head of gold on this image represented Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire. Verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. In other words, Babylon would be succeeded by a second kingdom. This kingdom was represented by the image's chest and arms of silver. We know from history that this was the Medo-Persian kingdom. The two arms coming together to form the chest pictured this kingdom perfectly because in 550 B.C. the Medes and the Persians came together under King Cyrus and became one empire that eventually conquered Babylon. Silver perfectly represented this kingdom. 
because the Medo-Persian Empire developed an extensive tax system that was the basis of its power, and the taxes had to be paid in silver. Daniel mentioned that this kingdom would be inferior to Babylon. That's an interesting statement because it cannot have reference to size or strength. This empire was both larger and stronger. But it was inferior in that it lacked the absolute unity that Babylon had. Babylon was a true monarchy. This prophecy was fulfilled in 539 B.C. when Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. Verse 39 continues, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So the dream was saying there will be a third world empire represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. We know from history that this was the kingdom of Greece. The kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in 331 B.C. And this prophecy was fulfilled perfectly. It's interesting that in the dream, God represented Greece by one belly subdivided into two thighs. That is fascinating because of what happened eventually in history. Alexander the Great died at 32. His lifestyle killed him. Historians agree on that. Then the Grecian kingdom was divided between the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt. Two divisions, just like the the belly and thighs. Belly dividing into two thighs. Also notice that God chose to represent Greece with bronze. We know that the Greeks used bronze extensively in their implements of war. It's a perfect match, a perfect fit or description. Verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. This fourth kingdom was the Roman Empire. To portray Rome with two legs was very appropriate because eventually the Roman Empire divided into two political divisions. This took place in A.D. 364 under Constantine. The Western Roman Empire had Rome as its capital, and the Eastern Roman Empire had Constantinople as its capital. Iron was an excellent designation of Rome because Rome was noted for its use of iron for its weapons. Also, as the description says here, iron is such a strong metal that it can crush other metals, and that is exactly how the Roman Empire was characterized. It was a crushing, mighty empire. This part of the prophecy was fulfilled in 146 B.C. when Rome conquered Greece. Then verses 41 through 43 describe the final human kingdom. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now this part of the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. It is still future. This describes the final stage of the Roman Empire consisting of a confederation of several nations. The ten toes indicate that it will be a ten-nation confederation. Unless you think that that's sort of stretching things. Oh, come on, do you mean the ten toes really had significance? Well, Daniel 7.24 brings this out, and so does Revelation 17.12. 
So this is a description of the revived Roman Empire. By the way, this dream has never left the West. Charlemagne, Napoleon, and Hitler all dreamed of restoring the ancient Western Empire. And one day it will happen. It will be headed up by a man who will be so cruel and so wicked and so powerful that the book of Revelation refers to him as the beast. The day is coming when there will be another world ruler, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Alexander the Great, but this world ruler will be the composite of all world rulers. We commonly refer to this man as the Antichrist. And we read about him in our text in Revelation chapter 13. So with this as background, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 13. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10, though we'll only cover the first few verses in detail. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. As we approach this passage in the book of Revelation, we are looking at the last half of the future seven-year tribulation period. There's a sense in which once you get to this point in the book of Revelation, you have already worked your way through most of the seven-year tribulation period because that is described in chapters 6 through 11. Those chapters tell us about the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments of the tribulation period. The only remaining judgments at this point are the seven bowl judgments, and they seem to take place right near the end of the tribulation period in a rapid-fire succession. So by the time you get to this point in the book of of, of Revelation, you've already seen much of the seven-year tribulation period from the standpoint of what God is going to do. He is going to unleash His wrath on this earth. But at the same time, Satan is going to be doing his thing. He is going to be trying to destroy the people of God, and he is going to be trying to establish his kingdom on this earth with his man, the Antichrist, heading up the whole system. So John tells us about these things in chapters 12, 13, and 14 before resuming the description of God's judgments in chapters 15 and 16. As we saw in our look at Daniel chapter 2, 
Man has had some powerful kingdoms down through the centuries. The Babylonian Empire, Medo-Persian Empire, Grecian Empire, Roman Empire. But the most powerful one is yet to come. And John describes it for us here in chapter 13. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Then I stood, or he stood, there's a textual issue here. We talked about that when we covered verse 1. On the, stand, on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. The crowns on the horns show the royal power of this beast. Who or what is this beast? As we saw in the last message of this series, the beast is both a system and a person. The description that John gives us in the early verses of this chapter is of the world system of the end times. So the beast is the revived Roman Empire. But at the end of verse 4, the personal pronoun him appears. And the personal pronoun is continually used after that. Verse 5 says he. Verse 6 says he. Verse 7 says him. Verse 8 says him. So the beast is the world system headed up by the Antichrist, just as the Third Reich was headed up by Hitler. Verse 2 says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. This is a conglomeration of the beasts in Daniel's dream recorded in Daniel 7, which we looked at in the last message. If you compare the two, you'll notice that this list goes backwards when compared with Daniel 7. Because when Daniel saw the beasts, they were future, but from John's viewpoint, they were in the past. In Daniel 7, the leopard represents the kingdom of Greece. The bear represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. The lion represents the kingdom of Babylon. So this final world empire will be a conglomeration of all of man's empires combined into one because the man heading it up, the Antichrist, will be a combination of all the world rulers who have ever reigned. As a leopard, the beast will be swift. The bear's feet symbolize the bruising force and the ability to crush its prey. The mouth of the lion symbolizes ferocity and terror. That's what the saints of the last days will have to face. This beast will be extremely powerful. The last sentence in the verse tells us where his power will come from. Verse 2 says, The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The beast will be Satan-inspired, Satan-empowered, Satan-directed, and satan controlled. He will not only be demonized or demon-possessed, he will be satanized. According to verse 10, he will have power over freedom and life. Do you remember what it says there in verse 10? We read it a moment ago. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience or perseverance and the faith of the saints. What that is saying is that this beast will persecute and kill believers during his reign of terror. He will have power over freedom and life. According to verses 16 and 17, 
He will have power over the entire business of mankind. Verse 16 says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. That is how much power and authority this man and his system will exert over the earth. No one will be able to buy or sell without his mark. It might be worth asking the question, how does this man attain such great power? I mean, think about the world today. Think of the diversity of the world. How could one man really rule the world as it is today? With all the diversity of languages and cultures and and currency and all of those types of things. How? For one thing, as we just saw, Satan will energize him. But from a political standpoint, what will be the circumstances that allow him to gain so much influence, so much power, and to rise to such a position? If you look back in history at world dictators, the answer to that question is almost always the same. What allows world dictators? One word. Chaos. Or another word, crisis. When things are in chaos, the mass of people just want someone, anyone, who can sort things out and get life back on track with some kind of normalcy. And people will sell their souls for that. Political or social or economic chaos sets the stage for someone to step forward and be followed by the mass of humanity. I believe that's what's going to aid the Antichrist's rise to power. We already know from Daniel chapter 9 that he will sign some kind of seven-year treaty with Israel. We know that. Maybe he will be able to solve the Israeli-Arab-Middle Eastern conflict. No one has been able to do that thus far. So if things continue to degenerate in the Middle East, things get more tense, more fiery, to the point of chaos and crisis, and the Antichrist comes with a solution, people will flock to him. But it is my opinion that that's not the only chaos he will resolve. We're all aware of the issues going on in the world today, especially in Europe, but even in our country, economic chaos, the potential for that. Maybe that enters into the equation. But there's another one, another issue. Since I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture, it seems to me that the world will be in chaos when that takes place. What a perfect opportunity for this man to capitalize on, to step into power. And since he will be empowered by Satan, he will be able to use the chaotic conditions of the world to step right into the limelight. But there's still more to this picture, or possibly more. There may be something else that will greatly aid him at getting into his position. I think it's alluded to in verse 3. John says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now, to what is this referring? There are basically two options. I'll give them both to you, and you can 
wrestle through it, sort it out on your own. Number one, this may have reference to the revival of a dead empire or the revival of a dead kingdom. As I mentioned earlier in the message, there is going to be a revival of the ancient Roman Empire, the ancient Western Empire, and that may be what this symbolism is portraying. When the ancient Roman Empire, which has been thought to be dead, is revived, the people of this world may marvel and pledge their allegiance to this new superpower on planet Earth. But there's another possibility as to what this symbolism is portraying. Option two, the Antichrist will be killed or nearly killed and revived. What is the evidence for this view? The phrase, as if it had been mortally wounded, that is used here, interestingly, is the same phrase used back in chapter 5, verse 6 of Revelation to refer to the death of Jesus. That is strong evidence for the view that this man will die and somehow be brought back to life. This deadly wound is emphasized several times in the book of Revelation. In fact, right here in this chapter, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, And he, who exer- and he exercises all the authority of the first beast. This is talking about the second beast. That is the man that we commonly refer to uh, as the false prophet. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, watch this, whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast whose wound, who was wounded by the sword and lived. And then skip over to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 8. 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will send, ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Verse 11, same chapter. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Several times when John mentions the beast, he refers to the fact that he had a mortal wound that was healed. It's interesting to note that back in chapter 11, verse 7, it says this man comes out of the abyss. And we just read that here. So, if you put all the information together, it's not a stretch to say that this man will die, or at least appear to die, descend into the abyss, and then come back to the earth. No wonder all the world will marvel. 2 Thessalonians 2 may be related to this. Go back uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment. After Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians <clears throat> right before 1 and 2 Timothy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. 
The coming of the lawless one, that's how Paul describes this man we call the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, now watch this, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It is possible that a counterfeit resurrection will be part of the lie Paul refers to here in verse 11. Possible. I'm not saying dogmatically, not saying certainly, possibly. The world refuses to accept the resurrection of the true Christ, but they may accept the resurrection or supposed resurrection of the false Christ. In fact, the word antichrist, the Greek term antichristos, means against Christ, but the Greek preposition anti also means instead of, so antichristos is not only against Christ, but, but instead of or in the place of Christ. This man will be embraced by the world instead of the true Christ. Now back to Revelation 13. So John tells us in his description here in Revelation 13 that this man will be satanically energized, satanically empowered, maybe satanically raised or false resurrection of some kind. Verse 4 says, So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Worship is the one thing Satan has always wanted, and he will receive it through the beast. When our Lord Jesus Christ was here on the earth, you remember that Satan promised him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just fall down and worship him. Of course, the Lord Jesus refused. But the world will not refuse when the man of sin is in charge. They will worship him, saying, who is like the beast. If you're familiar with Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, then you know that there are many times when the writers of Holy Scripture exalt the uniqueness of God by saying, who is like God? Exodus 15, 11, Micah 7, 18 are just a couple of examples. Who is like God? Who compares to God? Of course, the answer is absolutely no one. In fact, the name Michael, which is the name of the mighty angel mentioned in chapter 12, means who is like God. No one is like God. No one compares to God. But the world will be so enamored with the beast that they will blasphemously exclaim, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Satan will have the world believing that through his man, the Antichrist, he has usurped God's position as the sovereign king of the universe and his kingdom cannot be defeated. That's what the world will believe. What is going to happen with this man and his kingdom? Go back to Daniel chapter 2 where we started the message. and Let's look at the final element of Nebuchadnezzar's dream depicting man's empires and kingdoms. The final element of the dream is explained in verses 44 and 45 of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings, 
The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. God says the final kingdom will not be a human one. It will not be a satanic one. It will be divine. And Nebuchadnezzar would have understood this. To the Babylonian way of thinking, mountains were associated with what is divine. So this stone cut out of the mountains that has divine imagery all over it. In fact, they called their chief god, Marduk, the great mountain. But Daniel wasn't referring to Marduk. He was referring to Yahweh, the God of heaven. He is the God who will eventually set up an everlasting kingdom. The stone of verse 45 is undoubtedly the Lord Jesus Christ. Several times in the Bible he's referred to as a stone, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, the precious cornerstone. The phrase cut without hands may have reference to his virgin birth. At the very least it has reference to his deity. So the dream is saying this. In the days of the revived Roman Empire, in the days of the beast, to use Revelation 13 terminology, Jesus Christ will come and destroy all other kingdoms and set up his own. And the destruction will be so complete that in the dream, the image was crushed with such thoroughness that the wind could blow the dust away. Then this rock will become a mountain that will fill the entire earth. Beloved, human history is not going to end with the beast in his kingdom. That is not how it's going to end. Human history is going to climax with the Messiah's kingdom. And those who have submitted to him as king of kings and lord of lords will be a part of that kingdom. I hope and pray that's you. Let's bow together as we close. Father, you are so gracious to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar how history will unfold. And it will unfold exactly as you have described it. It will unfold with the culmination being the kingdom of your beloved Son, Jesus the Messiah. That's how it will end. Between now and then, there will be an absolutely horrific time here on planet Earth as the beast the system of the end times and the man heading up that system rule this planet. And it will be a time of great trial and suffering for your people. But it will be temporary because you promise, you have promised that your son, the Lord Jesus, this stone cut out of the mountain without hands, he will return and he will crush the final empire. And in crushing that final empire, he will crush all of man's empires. And then his kingdom will fill the whole earth. So we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. We pray according to Jesus' instructions. And in his name. Amen.